Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You uh, would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. And, oh, I don't have any updates or anything. Well, today. that's because you did so many oh, that's um, true. I did. two episodes I ago. But you have one. I do. On episode... You'd think I would remember, since it was so recent, our Say Her Name. That was episode 77. A lot has happened in the Breonna Taylor case. First of all, there's a great New York Times documentary on Hulu about the case, and I'm not doing an NNW review of it, but I will say it's worth watching. It's only an hour long. I felt like it breezed through a lot of stuff that it could have spent more time on case-wise. But one thing, it's an it's one thing to talk about it and read about it and hear other people talk about it, but to see, like, to see the damage to her apartment and to see, like, that first press conference where the police chief, it, basically an officer was shot and the suspect is dead, you know, where there's absolutely no acknowledgement of what really happened. And the oh. way they... Though the way they treat her mother, who's on it, who's really, really good. It's definitely worth watching. I recommend it to everybody. But that's not part of my update. I'm just throwing that out there. Two kind of major things have happened. The first is that 1,200 crime scene photos have been publicly released. They were part of the discovery for the charges against Ken Walker, her boyfriend, who's the one who allegedly shot the cop. And I'm not obviously going through the whole case and what happened. With those, the release of those crime scene, a variety of different media outlets have done a variety of things with them, most notably Vice, which compared photos that were taken that night. And then after the evidence was marked, you know, they put these little like green tent things with numbers next to like every shell casing and everything. The comparisons show that... Things were moved around, not not only shell casings. Mm, interesting. Yes, very. It, there were 35 at least shots fired. But also just things in the house. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to touch anything. The photos also show they took photos of all the cops. The police did. They've said that there's no body cam footage available. But one of the cops does have a body cam. Tony James, who's one of the original seven cops who was at the scene, so his body cam must not have gone on. They said, and we said in our episode, that the, that division doesn't wear body cams because they don't want to, I guess. But there were some other guys who weren't in that division mixed in with this because it was, that since they were raiding five places at once, they needed a lot of guys. But at least seven officers have body cams, even though they say there's no footage. There's some footage much later, but not of the raid itself. And so... There's a lot of stuff, as I said, related to the crime scene photos. And part of that also goes to the second thing to update, which is Ken Walker has filed a suit against the police department, a civil suit. If you remember, he was initially charged for shooting, allegedly shooting, the police officer. They stormed into the house. He legally has a gun. And one of the officers got shot in the thigh and he was immediately arrested. And his attorney and some other people have made the point that it's interesting how six months after this has all happened, they're still trying to sort things out and haven't charged any of the cops. But within three hours of Brianna Taylor being killed, her boyfriend was arrested and charged. Oh, no. it's interesting, isn't it? Hmm. Very interesting. But he 
was in jail for two weeks and then was on house arrest for two months. And I don't know if I ever said that. And the charges were dismissed without prejudice, which means that they can bring them back at any time. So his lawsuit is asking that the charges be completely dismissed and he has immunity from shooting the police officer under Kentucky's stand-your-ground law since the police didn't identify themselves when they burst into the house. Another part of that is the police have said that they didn't know there would be a man with a gun in the house, but their records that were released as part of this discovery show that the day before the warrant, their investigation showed that Ken Walker legally was able to have a gun and that he would likely be at her house, at her apartment, because he spent a lot of time there. Hmm. And also, I'd have to say that when you are doing a drug raid, I would assume that that would be an assumption you would probably make, that someone might have a gun in that house. Right, but their matrix or whatever they use for the risk assessment of barging into the house was that they weren't going to get shot at. And part of that, too, was they were supposed to have surveillance on the apartment all that day and night before they did the raid to make sure they knew what was going on. But their surveillance was shoddy because Ken and Brianna went out to dinner and then went home to watch a movie and go to bed. And their surveillance should have easily seen him going into the apartment and not coming out. And that was not part of their record either. His lawyer, Steve Ramones, also says the crime scene photos show that Ken Walker likely isn't the one who shot the cop, Mattingly. I I keep wanting to say Don Mattingly of the Yankees, but John Mattingly. Because there's no blood. The photos show no blood. They burst in. Ken Walker fired off a shot. The cops just started blown away. There were actually two flurries, and then they stopped for a little over a minute, and then Hankerson, the one who's been fired, said reload, and they started shooting again. Like during the 911 call, you can see on the New York Times documentary when Ken Walker, who doesn't know who shot Brianna, has no idea, calls 911. The cops have retreated. There's no gunfire, but then after that, they start shooting again. His civil rights lawyer says the crime scene photos show no blood And actually, you can see them for yourself, too. They're on, like, the Louisville Courier-Journal's website and stuff. There's no blood in the doorway. There's no blood on the ground. There's blood out in the parking lot. So it's likely that that cop was shot by friendly fire, not by Ken Walker. And more evidence of that is that the 9mm Glock that Ken Walker had had hollow-point bullets which do an incredible amount of damage to a person. One of the crime scene photos is actually of the bullet from his gun, and it's not damaged, and usually a bullet is damaged if it's gone through a person, and there's no blood on the bullet. And he was the only one using a Glock 9mm hollow point bullet. Hmm. Yes. On top of it, the police threatened him and mistreated him in a number of ways. One of them asked when they were leading him away if he was shot, and he said no, and they said, well, that's unfortunate. Another one threatened him with a police dog several times, telling him to kneel or he'd sick the dog on him. Walker finally had to kneel like and beg for his life. Um, yeah. Another cop told him he was going to go away for life. And they also implied, even though all this was going on, that he wasn't a suspect and wasn't being charged with anything. So he waived his right to a lawyer. And I just want to say to everybody, I don't care if you're black, white, purple, brown, yellow, green, orange, get a lawyer. 
if the cops don't yeah don't wave your right don't say anything right if the cops That's not legal i'm not giving legal advice and not a lawyer but neither of us are what i would do but if something bad has happened don't trust the police to take care of you if they're bringing you to question you get a lawyer you can talk to them with your lawyer there. I'm not saying don't talk to them, but just tell them you want to talk to them with a lawyer present. And I can see how, I mean, he was in shock. His girlfriend had just been shot in front of his eyes, you know? So anyway, his lawsuit, he's suing the city and the police department and a couple other people, and he's asking for immunity from prosecution for shooting the cop. There's also like seven other things, false imprisonment, false arrest. As he pointed out at a press conference a few days ago, I am a legal gun owner. I would never knowingly shoot a police officer. He has no criminal record. He doesn't do drugs. He's not involved in drugs. And neither was Brianna Taylor. Hopefully something will come from that. Of course, six months in, there's no report. You know, they released that redacted one. You know, three of the cops are on administrative leave. And the whole thing about him possibly being shot with friendly fire reminds me of that documentary, I think in episode 77 that I did my rating on Peace Officer that I recommend everybody watch, where the police raided a guy. He was growing pot in his basement. And it was just another thing where just bullets were just flying all over the place and, and a cop got shot. And the piece, the guy, the documentary is about reconstructed the scene. And it's obviously the cop, obvious the cop who was shot was shot by friendly fire, not by the guy in the house. And the cops just won't see it that way. They're not going to see it that way. And I've always felt this way. And I know this may not be a popular opinion with a lot of people, but I would like to add as well, I know it's an awful thing for a police officer to get shot. I know they put their lives on the line, but I have never understood why, especially in the eyes of the police, it's considered worse for a police officer to get shot than it is for an innocent person, whether that person is shot by a police officer or someone else. Police do put their lives on the line with the expectation that bad people may be shooting at them, and it's part of their job, and I'm not saying that glibly, but I'm saying that that they understand it's part of their job. It comes with the territory, like a fireman getting buried in a burning house or any other dangerous job. And the way they all gather around when a cop is shot and make it it's so much a bigger deal that when an innocent person is shot, particularly by one of them, or an innocent person is shot by, a, you know, a bad person, I have never, ever, ever understood why the innocent people who have a right to go through life without ever expecting to get shot at, unlike a police officer, are considered less worthy of that kind of attention. Yeah, I know. So that's my Breonna Taylor update. <laughs> well, thank you. And there's probably more, but but that's the gist of it. I recommend Googling Brianna Taylor and Vice or the Louisville Courier-Journal and also watching, I think it's on Hulu, the New York Times um, documentary. Okay. And do you have anything you want to say before I start my thing? No, I don't know what you're doing, so you, I'm very you don't. excited. If you recognize this at any point... I'll let you know if I recognize, if and when I recognize. If, if and when. Okay. I used newspapers.com, which I can't say enough about, to get information on this from when it happened. And anybody who's doing any kind of research, I can't stress enough how much more you get when you can read the accounts of something right when it happened. 
And most of my information is from the Tampa Bay area newspapers, the Tampa Bay Tribune, which I think was the St. Petersburg Tribune at one point, the Sarasota Herald. I'll cite, you know, what I'm using. This has been written about by other people. It has been, I think some other podcasts have done it. I didn't listen to them. I found it by accident. I was looking up something else that I don't want to say what I was looking up because it might be a spoiler. And I just came across this, and I may have read a little bit about it a few years ago, but most of this is fresh to me, and hopefully it will be to most of you. So here we go. Christine Walker, 24, known to her family and friends as Tilly, brought her two kids, Jimmy, four, and Debbie, who was a month away from being two, to their friends, the McLeod's house, late Saturday afternoon, December 19, 1959, to meet her husband Cliff, who'd gone over to the McLeods after work with Don McLeod, who he worked with at the Palmer Ranch in Sarasota, Florida. The Walker family had a pre-Christmas visit with the McLeods before Christine left to go home about 15 or 20 minutes before Cliff and the kids, who wanted the kids wanted to ride with Cliff in his Jeep. Today, Palmer Ranch is a sprawling residential community. Back then, it was a cattle ranch, and the Walker's home was on the Palmer Estate land. The ranch had been started. I won't go into it. I almost had a whole history lesson for everybody, but you'll be happy to know I didn't. Mrs. Palmer, whose name I can't remember because I didn't take notes on that, had established the ranch in the early 1900s, and it was a very large cattle ranch that did a lot of innovative things. She died around the end of World War I or something, but her family kept the ranch going well into, I think, the 60s or 70s, and then the land got sold off for the subdivision. But in 1959, it was still a ranch, and the Walker's home was on the ranch land, about two miles from the main part of the ranch. Cliff Walker worked for the Palmer family, and they rented the house, and it was in a little town called Osprey, which is right next to Sarasota. They moved there from Arcadia, Florida, a couple or a few years before, depending on which article you read. The Sarasota Herald Tribune years later described him as a poorly paid cowboy. Christine left, as I said, by herself from the McLeod's house about 15 or 20 minutes before the rest of the family. It was cold and rainy that day. This was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The house, a former hunting camp, was a little northeast of Osprey, and the nearest neighbor was about a mile away. When Christine got home, she put her purse in its usual place and put a Christmas card from the McLeods that they'd just given her on the refrigerator. Christmas decorations hung in the living room, and the tree was up with presents underneath it. Cliff likely arrived home just a little later, driving down the isolated crushed shell road that led to their house, leaving a load of livestock feed in the Jeep as well as his loaded 22 caliber rifle, which was a staple for most of the men in the area, and he left it in the Jeep. The next morning, Don McLeod arrived at the Walker's house before dawn. They had plans to go wild hog hunting that morning. Ooh. But when McLeod arrived, the house was dark, and no one answered his knock. He knocked repeatedly, growing more concerned. It was odd. Cliff was usually pretty reliable, got up early, and would normally be ready. Jimmy and Debbie were young. You know, they were little kids who made a lot of noise, and things were rarely quiet around the house. After looking in some windows and not seeing anything, McLeod started getting really nervous. He thought maybe there'd been a gas leak or something. He popped the latch on the back door using his pocket knife. It was a simple pass-key entrance, easy to pop, and he walked into the kitchen to find Cliff lying in a pool of blood on the floor. His coat and boots from the day before still on, his cowboy hat still on his head. Jimmy lay dead on the floor near his legs. Aww. Also in his cowboy boots and a coat, 
his cowboy hat nearby. McLeod didn't stick around. He didn't want to take the truck he'd arrived in. It was heavy, carrying a horse trailer with two horses that they were going to use for hunting, and it would slow him down. He got in Cliff's Jeep, and this is according to Woody Thayer, who wrote for the, the Tampa Bay Times, whose information seems more reliable than others. There were other accounts that said he ran two miles, but um, I'm trusting Woody. Woody said he drove two miles to the nearest telephone. He called the sheriff's department and said there's trouble in Osprey. Crime scene investigation in 1959 wasn't what it is now. With no crime scene photographer, Sheriff Ross Boyer allowed a newspaper reporter and photographer to wander the scene taking pictures. While not named in a 2005 Sarasota Herald Tribune story that mentions that, I believe from the research I did on newspapers.com, that was Woody Thayer of the Tampa Bay Times, who had a lot of photos of the crime scene, including, like, their dogs. Like, there's one dog just lying on the front porch looking really sad. Aww. At first, I'm like, oh, my God, they didn't shoot the dog, too. But yeah. um, And the bodies and a lot of other stuff. He also seems to have the most accurate and detailed information about the scene throughout his stories over the years. A lot of the other stuff looks like stuff people picked up from other sources, and it got twisted around, as we've talked about before. Investigators believe Christine, who'd also been raped, had been attacked upon returning home. She was fully dressed, but her dress and her, quote, petticoats, which I think she probably had a slip on, were pulled up. Well, she could have been wearing those, where they had those full skirts, they had like crinoline underneath. Right, right, that, that could have been. She was shoeless, and it looked like she put up a fight. She was beaten as well as shot, and also possibly stabbed. Cliff had been shot in the eye, kind of the corner of his eye next to his nose, killed so fast his hat stayed on as he fell to the ground. Jimmy was shot multiple times, and it looked like from blood smears on the floor he'd try to crawl to his father. Debbie, a month away from her second birthday, was shot in the head and also drowned in the bathtub. I know. Sheriff Boyer told one reporter the killer was, quote, an expert marksman, unquote. But even though I'm not a gum person, I'm wondering how he came to that conclusion. I haven't seen it anywhere else, but while Cliff was shot, we don't know from how far enough away, in the eye, close to his nose, Jimmy was shot more than once, as was Christine. Debbie was shot in the top of her head, a shot that likely didn't immediately kill her, and hence the drowning. Also, while it's usually said a rifle was used to kill them, deputies at the time thought it was likely a revolver, since six shots were fired and then Debbie was drowned because they surmised maybe the shooter didn't have any more ammo. So you can have a 22 caliber rifle or a 22 caliber revolver. Rifles are generally used for distance shooting, where revolvers are used for shooting things that are close up. And it was a little house. So I, I was trying to imagine how somebody with a rifle would do all that. I haven't seen any stories that go into that. So maybe I'm just overthinking it. I don't know. Clues found that day at the scene were a blood-smeared slipper or high-heeled shoe of Christine's, depending on which account you read. It was found on the front porch or in the kitchen, depending on what account you read. There are indications they thought the blood was someone else's, though that's never really explained in any story. Depending on what you read, and one story years later says they thought she threw a shoe at her attacker. And that's why it was where it was, but who knows. Depending on what you read, the cellophane from a cool cigarette package, a brand neither of the walkers smoke, was found, 
or Cliff's carton of cool cigarettes was missing. Again, there's no way of knowing which of those things are accurate. There was a partial bloody fingerprint on the bathtub faucet. Police believe Christina been shot, but not a kill shot, on the bed where there was blood. She was killed by a second shot to the head. Someone had tried to wipe blood from her legs with a quilt, and she'd also been dragged three feet into the dining room. Debbie, like I said, had been shot in the top of the head, and a sock had been stuffed in the bathroom drain to keep the water from running out. Investigators surmised that the killer or killers were out of ammo, as I said, and wanted to make sure Debbie died. Christine's mother, Ruby, was ironing in her kitchen when she heard about the murders on the radio. Before the walkers were shot, they lived a life typical of many rural people in the 1950s. Much fuss has been made about the post-war years and how prosperous everybody became. That narrative, of course, has left out the housing redlining that left mostly black people unable to own property in many neighborhoods across the country and the rampant racism that's still being felt today. And while the walkers weren't black, they're another group that's been overlooked in the overly sunny look at the post-war years. The rural poor who eke out a living in any way they can, live in crummy houses with, if they have electricity and plumbing, it's the bare minimum, and try every day to find ways to feed their family. And by all accounts, that's the kind of life Christine and Cliff had, and it's also the way they grew up in Arcadia, which is an inland farming community. No one in Christine's family is sure when exactly she met Cliff. She was born in November 1935, Christine Myers, and her family and friends called her Tilly, as I said earlier. Throughout this, I may call her Christine, I may call her Tilly. I didn't really pay a lot of attention to which name I was using, but just so you don't get confused, if it's Christine or Tilly, it's the same person. She was the oldest of what was to become a blended family. After her sister Novella, who was four years younger, was born, their parents divorced, and she rarely had contact with her father, Albert Myers. Her mother remarried at some point because she has some siblings who are a good deal younger than she is. Tilly grew up, as I said, dirt poor in Arcadia, Florida. Their mother barely made it as a laundress, using an old wash tub with one of those, you know washboard things to do people's laundry. Christine and Novella made orange crates out of wood scraps to sell to tourists to make extra money. As teenagers, they both worked at the local McCrory's Five and Dimes store. Christine was an expert roper, and she was an expert with the bullwhip. And one game she and Novella would play would be to taunt a bull on a neighbor's property, and as Novella ran for the fence, Tilly would hold the bull off with her rope and whip. You oh, had to... Yeah, that doesn't sound like a... You had to make fun any way you could back then, I guess. guess. She also taught herself to twirl a baton with a broomstick and eventually became the lead majorette at DeSoto High School. Christine also had her own style. She was an attractive girl and also liked to home color her hair and experiment with Tony perms. I don't know if people, I never did one myself, but Tony perms were a big thing back in the day. She had to get a front tooth cap and she got a gold cap for it, which um, caused some consternation in her family, but she loved her gold tooth cap. She also loved wearing her majorette costume and she became quite an attractive young woman and there's a photo of her posing in her majorette costume that would give Marilyn Monroe a run for her money in one of the newspaper stories. She used to keep her favorite majorette costume in a cedar chest after she got married and bring it out to show family and friends, telling them she was saving it for Debbie. No one in Tilly's family is sure where exactly she met Cliff. They both went to DeSoto High School. He was a year older than her, and they were both on the local rodeo circuit. He was a, um, 
Brack Rider and Bull Roper, and she had her roping and whipping talents, and I guess there were a lot of little local rodeos back then. The two got married in 1955, a double wedding in which Novella, then 16, also wed. There isn't as much, I couldn't find much about Cliff's background, childhood, or family. Shortly after they got married, Cliff got the job at Palmer Ranch, and Cliff and Tilly moved to the little house that had once been a hunting lodge on Osprey Slide Road. According to a 1966 article in the Miami Herald, the house was a mile from the nearest neighbor. The former ranch, as I said, has been subdivided into a massive, sprawling, just huge housing development with all these different sections. By the way, I still haven't figured this out. Okay, good, good. You will, I think, much later. You may remember it. It's likely that the little crushed shell road they lived on and their little ranch house with the fence around it are long gone. The weapon that fired the bullets that killed the walkers has never been found. One thing police thought at the time, and were still saying in the 1970s and possibly later, is that the killer or killers, though they most always say killer, knew the family either as another family member or a friend. That's the only reason they could think that the kids were killed. The kids would be able to ID the killer. I can think of some other reasons, mostly that there are a lot of sick fucks in the world, which you'd think police would know too, but whatever. Quote, Why would he have had to kill the kids if he was a stranger? He didn't have to hurt them, Sheriff Boyer told a reporter in 1972. They didn't bother him a damn bit. According to some stories, possibly $17 or $18 was taken from the house. Today, I looked it up, would be akin to $160.50. While some people dismiss that amount, I think back in 1959, if somebody was looking to kill somebody to get some money, that would have helped him out a little. Two things apparently taken were significant, at least to police at the time. One thing reported missing was the Walker's marriage certificate, which family members said had been hanging framed on a wall in the living room, but wasn't there after the murders. Another was Tilly's majorette outfit, which was missing from the cedar chest when Tilly's belongings were delivered to her mother's house sometime after the murder. All that was in the chest was the plastic dry cleaner's bag that Tilly had kept it in. A few months after the murders, some women found bloody clothes in a shed a mile or two from the Walker home, according to a 2005 Sarasota Herald Tribune story. Reading the stories from the 1960s, I didn't come across this, but maybe it's information that the police hadn't released until later. I think in 2005, the Sarasota Herald Tribune got a bunch of records from the police department and did an in-depth series. The issue being, they are on newspapers.com. And when I clicked on a lot of those stories, like finding them through Wikipedia and stuff, I got an error message. So they probably changed their website or something. They're no longer available. But I did manage to find one. And so I think they got information from the police records that hadn't been published before. And that was one of the things. The clothes, two shirts, a skirt, a blouse, pants, and a handkerchief belonged to Cliff and Christine. And police thought the killer probably used them to mop himself up. The fact that clothes were found where they were validated the police theory that someone familiar with the area near the Walker's house had killed them, sneaking away to hide the evidence, according to the story. I'm not sure if I need more details on the location or what, but I think anyone fleeing the scene could have dumped the clothes. You read a lot and hear a lot, like on true crime shows, where somebody said, well, they must have known the area to know about this place or that place, and in some cases that's true. But in other things, somebody who's just done something who's fleeing and doesn't want to use the main road or something may come across a place to dump the clothes. Nearly 61 years after the crime, nearly 600 people have been investigated. 
many with the lie detector machine, as the sheriff's department called it. And no one has ever been charged with the murder. Which isn't to say there haven't been some theories, as well as some likely possible suspects. The sheriff's department had what they, I just mentioned, they called it, at the time, a lie detector machine. And they used it liberally during those early days. Reported... They want to get their money's worth. I picture it like one of those ones on cartoons where a big red light goes like beep, beep, beep (laughs) when the person's lying or something. But they reportedly used it 150 or more times in the first year of the investigation. This machine, or one like it, would later play a dramatic and possibly misleading part in the investigation. But that's something for later. On the morning the bodies were found, they told Don McLeod that they'd need to question him with it. Put the some bitch on me, he said. (laughs) (laughs) according to one of the stories I read. He passed. In the 2005 Sarasota Herald Tribune story, it it was written by Matthew Doig, by the way, Ruby Collins, Christine's mother, said she got a letter after the murders that was mailed the day before before the family was killed. Boy, I have a lot to tell you when I see you, Tilly wrote. I think that could mean almost anything, but apparently police felt it supported their theory that there was some stuff going on with men that might have led to the murder. The story says that Sheriff Boyer and his men suspected the killer had lusted after Christine for years, and his obsession became deadly when she rejected his advances. The investigation focused on the Walkers' male friends and family members, especially those with a reputation for getting drunk and rowdy. It also focused on men in the area with a history of violence against women and looking at crimes across the nation that involved a 22 caliber weapon. And if anyone thinks there aren't a lot of sick fucks in the world, once again, an unsolved murder will show you just how many there are all all around you. I'm never, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm always a little stunned when we do one of these and all the possible suspects, or even just some of the possible suspects, and it's like, oh my god, there's these people all around you that are just... I know. I know. But some of the early suspects were, and this is thanks to the really in-depth 2005 Sarasota Herald Tribune story, and I'm only going to go through some of the most notable ones. There were a lot, like there was one guy who a week before in Tulsa, Oklahoma, had shot a young couple in a car with a 22 caliber rifle and was on the run, and they looked as him as a possibility, but then they found him in Texas like a week later, and he had it. So there was a lot of that, but here were some of the more likely ones. Or ones they thought, I should say at the time, were likely. Stanley Mock. Stanley read meters for the electric company, but Matthew Doig of the Herald Tribune wrote, quote, a troubled mind lurked behind his everyman exterior. Apparently, before the Walker murders, he enlisted the help of a psychiatrist to quash an uncontrollable urge to kill his wife and two small children. Investigators on the Walker case learned about him from the Sarasota Police Department. It turns out Mock was the Walker's meter reader, but detectives never found evidence to link him to the case. His wife, Mary Mock, told the Herald Tribune in 2005 that her husband, who died of brain cancer in 1997 at the age of 63, was devastated by the Walker's deaths. He used to see the kids playing and even talk to them sometimes. Quote, when he saw it in the paper, it just about killed him, she said. After the murder, sometimes he would get up at night, walk the street, and cry. Interesting. Yes. And shortly afterward, he had a complete breakdown and received electroshock therapy. Quote, Hmm. Yes, he was afraid he would do something to us. He had that fear that something might happen, she said. He would get like that a lot of times, reading meters. He explained it would build up in his chest. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) Maybe he should have just done something else for a living. I don't know why reading the meters. I know. 
make him do that. Uh, it would build up in his chest, the fear, and he'd get scared that he was going to die, unquote. But she's convinced he is innocent. I'm positive in my heart he could never do something like that, she said. Another possibility was a guy named Harry Monday. Harry, a 16-year-old military school student, stabbed a Miami hotel maid, Margaret Nage, 44, 40 times in April 1960. At the time of the Walker murders, he was attending a military academy in Venice, Florida, and living with his grandmother in Sarasota. But he was cleared. It's not clear what cleared him. Um, Not only of the Walker murders, but of one that had been confounding Sarasota police at the time, and Stanley, the meter reader, could have been this, because this this one, too, because he was on Stanley's route. Either the police or the press had dubbed this one the Mummy Murder. In August 1959, Chandler Steffens, a 22-year-old University of Florida student, was found dead in his apartment in Sarasota. He'd been hogtied, his head was wrapped in adhesive tape, with only his nostrils and ears left uncovered, hence mummy, and he was tortured with a knife for hours before his throat was cut. And that is still unsolved. My guess is that they looked at the wrong people, and even though Chandler was married, I'm wondering if it was a pickup gone wrong. But it's not for me to say. Another guy the police looked at was Wilbur Tooker. Tooker, 65, was a retired railroad worker who got a $101 pension check each month. And the Herald Tribune pointed out he paid 75 of it in alimony. He lived about a mile southwest of the Walkers. He was their closest neighbor. He often visited until he made himself unwelcome because he couldn't keep his hands off Christine, the Herald Tribune said. Ugh. Christine's mother, Ruby Collins, told police that Christine dreaded Tooker and was afraid of him. She had told her sister that the only way to stop him was with a bullet. Several Walker friends and family members told police Tooker had many times quote-unquote manhandled Christine, tried to kiss her, and get her into bed. I guess Christine kept this from Cliff for a while, but when she finally told Cliff, Cliff wanted to kill him. But a friend talked him out of it. can't really blame him. Cliff warned Tooker not to come around the house again because Tooker couldn't behave like a gentleman. William Hosmer, a friend of Tooker's, told investigators that Tooker was infatuated with Christine and constantly talked about her. After the murders, Hosmer said, Tooker went to the Walker house twice a week because he needed to, quote, gather counter evidence to protect himself. And I, I wonder what that was all about. <laughs> That's weird. Police determined that the night of the murders, Tooker ate dinner in Sarasota with a friend, a retired dentist, who said they ate sometime between 5 and 7. That left Tooker with no alibi for between 4 and 5 when the walkers were killed. And Sarasota was just over the line. You know, they were practically in Sarasota in this house. After dinner, Tooker went to Bradenton High School. He got there sometime before 7.45. He played violin in the West Coast Symphony Orchestra. When, pol- when police asked the orchestra members if Tooker seemed troubled or acted oddly, played differently or anything, they were told, quote, he is such a poor player that it would never be possible to determine <laughs> whether he played more poorly on one night than another. Tooker died in 1963 at Veterans Memorial Hospital in Florida. Another suspect looked into was Elbert Walker, and that's Elbert with an E, a cousin of Cliff's. Elmer had lived with the family for months in 1958. The Herald Tribune story reported that Elbert wailed during the service, the funeral service, which was on Christmas Eve for the walkers, and fainted twice, including when Christine's casket passed by him. Family members thought he was faking it, later telling police that Elbert had put on a show during the funeral. They described Elbert as wild and said he went on drinking binges and got rowdy and belligerent. 
Split's brother Clarence told police that Elbert was the type of person who would commit a crime of this nature. <laughs> There's lots of great people in there. I know. That fit the police's profile, or whatever they called it back then, of a guy who... Yeah, gee. Well, no, let me finish the sentence. Of a guy who knew the family well, who secretly loved Christine, and who could commit such murders. Albert told the Herald Tribune in 2005 that he didn't do it, and he was surprised to learn that his own family members would tell police he could. He started crying during this interview when he talked about his cousin, Cliff. Quote, hell, when you're as close as we were, we were like brothers more than cousins, he said. Cliff is one of the most wonderful guys you ever met. It was such a shock to me that he could have had an enemy. After the murder, Elbert had been extremely reluctant to talk about the crime with family members, according to Cliff's sister, Grace Humans. She told police that he even left the room when the topic came up. On the morning of the day the walkers were found dead, Elbert traveled to Osprey from his home in Wachula, an inland town about 70 miles northeast. He dropped a friend off at the Ohio bar and then drove to a gas station where he asked two men, do you know where Cliff Walker lives? Since Elbert had lived at the Walker's house for months after leaving the military in 1958 and had visited often for family get-togethers like cookouts and things, he knew where it was, but yet he asked them. That's weird. Yeah, it is. One of the men said that Elbert's eyes were red and it looked as though he had had a rough night. The men told him about the murders, then had Elbert follow them to the house. When he arrived, though, Elbert reacted as if it was the first time he'd heard about the murders. You know, the men had told him, but he got there and acted surprised. He sobbed uncontrollably, leaned over the hood of Christine's car, and buried his head in his arms. He told police he'd come to Osprey to talk with Cliff about a Christmas party the Walkers were going to have, but police found out that Cliff had never planned a party and that the family was going to Arcadia for Christmas. The investigation wound its way for a year or two, and police apparently didn't look too much at Elbert until September 1962 when they took another look at him. He was by then living in Ridgely, Tennessee and working on a farm. His 17-year-old girlfriend, Johnny Rainey, and her brother told police that although Elbert had often talked about the rest of the Walker family, he had never mentioned Christine. Rainey said Elbert became visibly disturbed, which I don't, I, and I only used that phrase so I could say that if somebody else says somebody is visibly disturbed, you don't need the word visibly. If you can see they're disturbed, then visibly is not a necessary word. I'm just saying. And if you're writing, okay, never write the phrase, she could see he was visibly disturbed. <laughs> Which I've come across in some books I've been reading lately. (laughs) Anyway, Johnny Rainey, the 17-year-old girlfriend, said Elbert became visibly disturbed when he talked about Cliff. And her brother said that Elbert was crying like a baby as he explained how Debbie had been drowned in the bathtub. Which, to tell you the truth, yeah, I can see if you knew a family and loved them and the two-year-old was drowned in the bathtub after being shot, you might cry too. That's just Maureen saying that. Elbert also told him that Jimmy, the little boy, didn't die immediately because he, quote, crawled up to his daddy and died, according to police. Investigators wondered how Elbert could have known that, and they reviewed every newspaper story about the Walker murders. They found no references to Jimmy crawling, just that he died huddled next to his father. Although I would say that there were smears of blood on the floor, and just because it hasn't been in the paper doesn't mean the family's not talking about it, and some cop... even a cop could have... Right. It's a small area. Like, back then, Sarasota was much smaller than it is now. Osprey was only a couple thousand people. Everybody knew everybody, and I can't imagine it would be odd 
for somebody to say, yeah, that little boy, he was shot a couple times. He crawled, tried crawling to his dad and they shot him again or something. Anyway, Elbert was hooked up to the old Sarasota County lie detector machine and he passed. In 1987, during a meeting, Detective Max Skeens, Lieutenant Dario Valente, and Ron Elberton, another lieutenant, the latest detectives assigned to the case, brought in retired Detective Ellis Denham, considered an expert on the Walker case. They asked Denham who his top suspect had been before he retired in 1975, and this was in 1987. Elbert Walker, he said. So they brought Elbert to the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office again and hooked him up to their newest lie detector machine, which I think they were now calling a polygraph, and he passed again. Elbert is, quote, not responsible for the Walker murders, Valente wrote in his report. He added that Elbert Walker was extremely cooperative and appreciated the active concern regarding this case's investigation. But during the interview, Valenti predicted it wouldn't be the last time Elbert found himself answering questions about the murders. Quote, 15 years from now, somebody is going to come along and probably do everything that we've did all over again, Valenti said. They're going to have better ways of doing it, you know? It wasn't exactly 15 years, maybe a few years longer, I'm not good at math, that Elbert took another test. In 2006, they tested his DNA, much better than a lie detector machine, and it cleared him. He didn't match the semen that was found on Christine's underwear. Oh, dear. That's just a sampling of some of the guys investigated by police. There were many more. State Attorney Max Smiley, upon his retirement at the end of 1960, said the motive was, quote, unquestionably rape. He said investigators know there were people fishing along the creek near the Walker's home the day of the murder. Quote, if we knew who these people were, we might be closer to solving the case, he said. He said the murders were by a sex-driven, cold-blooded killer intent on rape. Quote, if you can picture a man who would rape a woman with blood and death all around him, then you know what kind of killer we are dealing with, he said. Which tells me he wasn't paying a lot of attention because the police theory is that Tilly was raped before the rest of the family came home. So maybe some blood, no death yet. She was alive when she was raped. And also his whole, you know, these guys fishing or something flies in the face of the very long-held police theory that it was a vengeful would-be boyfriend who killed her. Of the mummy murderer, you know, the guy who was wrapped up and tortured and stabbed, he said it was by a sadist, somebody on the move. It seems as though that's a more likely scenario for the Walker murders, too. I'm going to look now at two main investigation focuses over the years, and I'm going to end with my favorite one. And if you've heard about this case, that's the one that most likely would have brought it to your attention. But first, before I talk about those two different things, I want to get something else out of the way. Since Tilly was raped, of course, rumors started circulating pretty quickly that she slept around. There's no evidence, though, that she did. She had two little kids. She worked. She lived an exhausting, bare-bones life. The theory went that an enraged boyfriend raped and killed her, then killed Cliff, who surprised him in the house and the kids because they could ID him, which is a little different from the official police theory that a would-be boyfriend did it because she rejected him. In any case, not only back then, but even now, if a woman's raped, it must be because of something she did and not just because the guy's a fucking rapist looking for someone to rape or taking the opportunity to rape somebody because she's there by herself. According to a 2013 story in the Sarasota Herald Tribune by Donna Cohn, townspeople at the time gossiped to police that Tilly was lovesick 
starved and liked to flaunt her figure. Pat Myers, her brother, told Cohn she was attractive and she was raped and people back then and sometimes now still think women asked for it. Everybody wanted to blame her. Myers, who was eight when his sister and her family were killed, used to visit the couples, spending a week or so at a time there. I never saw them fight, he said. Oh, you know, they would fuss like any married couple, but that was it. A few of Christine's friends told investigators that she had asked them how to terminate a pregnancy and that she would rather be dead than have another child. The year she was murdered, Christine had two miscarriages, leading detectives to wonder if she had taken a lover on the side and decided to hide the results. My guess, it would be nice if somebody had pointed this out in the story, is that it had nothing to do with quote-unquote taking a lover on the side if she did want to terminate a pregnancy, but probably a lot more to do with being dirt poor and exhausted trying to care for two little kids and the family that she already had. No shit. But until police and everyone else get their head out of their ass and look at rape not as something to do with sex, but as a violent, controlling attack on a person, that kind of misleading stuff is going to be a problem. No suspects, apparently, that followed that theory ever turned up. But yet it persists. Her family is, closes just a few years ago, said one of the biggest things that still persists from this case is the vilification of Christine Walker. And the stories about her that aren't true that now have become this reality for people. Now to the two biggest investigative focuses. Another guy that even more than Elbert Walker had police chasing all over the place was Emmett Monroe Spencer, a psychopath serial killer in the Southeast and probably other places, who confessed four times to the Walker murders while he was on death row in Relford Prison in Florida after killing a man in Key West in 1960. The conviction, that Key West conviction, was part of an 11-month 1959-1960 cross-country murder trip from Kentucky to California to Florida and other places, Ah. in which Spencer killed four people that can definitely be tied to him. He brought along 17-year-old Mary Hampton. Investigating Spencer's claims, though Sheriff Boyer had his doubts, tied up investigators from April of 1962 to June of 1963, according to George Miller, a Miami Herald reporter who was actually writing about Mary Hampton in 1966, but who also had a lot of great details about this part of the case. Boyer didn't find Spencer credible. He liked to confess to a lot of things and was considered a pathological liar. In fact, he'd, like um, Henry Lee Lucas, decades later, he confessed to hundreds of murders that he didn't commit. But Boyer did have to check out the story. At first, Spencer was vague about things, but the more they interviewed him, which they did frequently, he began to get more details right as the interrogations went on. Things like the crushed shell driveway, Christine being dragged across the bedroom floor, the woven wire fence around the house, a can of Maxwell House coffee on the counter, a picture of Cliff in a white cowboy hat sitting on a horse and holding some rodeo trophies that hung on the living room wall. But his account also didn't make sense in a lot of places, and there was no physical proof or evidence that he had ever been there. And there were other details he didn't know. The 1966 George Miller story says he relayed in explicit pornographic detail his life with Mary Hampton, who was 16 when he abducted her basically for this cross-country rampage, Spencer described her as a whore, a drunk, and a sadistic murderer. Mary, at the time that these interviews took place with the police, was doing time for two murders in Louisiana. Spencer said that Mary Hampton sashayed away from the house after the murders and said, I gave that kid the last bath she will ever get. Those goddamn Ah. baths... 
Those goddamn bastards were as poor as us. Police thought if Spencer could tell them where he disposed of the murder weapon, it would prove he'd actually done it. He gave them a couple of locations, and they spent quite a bit of time using metal detectors, dogs, and more to search for the rifle in several wide-ranging places where Spencer said it was, but they came up with nothing. When the police went to visit Mary Hampton in her Louisiana prison, where she was serving life, they found a simple, terrified girl who could hardly communicate. She was hardly the sadistic, rowdy killer Spencer had portrayed. Hampton told investigators that they couldn't have killed the Walkers because they were in California at the time. And in fact, investigators found that Spencer had made 17 phone calls in California the week the Walkers were killed. This was back in the day when you could trace somebody's phone calls. I mean, not trace them, but he was living in a apartment or rooming house or something, and the phone was there, and they could see it was used and called. He made six trips to a lumberyard, signing the receipts with his own name. He was also fired from his job in California on December 21st, and the boss handed him personally a check when he fired him. Spencer liked to confess to crimes, as I said, and in Florida alone, investigators interviewed 210 witnesses trying to catalog crimes he'd confessed to in 66 cities and towns using 13 different cars. It was all bullshit. Like I said, he was an early version of the confession killer, Henry Lee Lucas, a great Netflix documentary if you have the time, and he confessed almost as many murders. But in Spencer's case, police were actually smarter than they were in Lucas's case and didn't believe him in a lot of cases. Also, Mary Hampton, with help from the reporter George Miller at the Miami Herald and the guy we hate to love and love to hate, F. Lee Bailey, was eventually released, her convictions deemed wrongful convictions. An interesting story that maybe I'll do someday, but we don't have time for today. The short version is she was 16 and basically was abducted and controlled by a psychopath. The other famous theory tied to this case, and a more likely one, and if you've heard of this case, the one you've most likely heard about it because of, is that the Walkers were killed by Perry Smith and Dick Hickok, who, who 34 days before the Walkers were killed, murdered the Clutter family in Holcomb, Kansas. That murder was made famous by the Truman Capote, and I'd like to say Harper Lee as well, book, the In Harper Cold Lee Blood. Book, you mean? Yeah, yeah. In Cold Blood. Hickok and Smith, who had been in prison together, and got out in November, or at least the last one of them, got out in November of 1959, had heard from somebody that the Clutters had a safe with $10,000 in it in their house, so they went to rob it, and when they got there, there was no safe and no money, but they killed the Clutter family, the parents, and two teenage kids, and then they took off. They ended up in Florida the week the Walkers were killed, and they were later arrested in Las Vegas on December 30th, 1959. The pair were identified as possible suspects in this case early on in January of 1960. And some of the stories I've read, recent stories, say, according to the Sheriff's Department records and stuff, I actually, on newspapers.com, found actual stories about them being identified as um, suspects. In In Cold Blood, Truman Capote mentions the Walker oh, killings yes. twice. He has Smith and Hickok sitting on a beach in Miami, reading about them in the Herald, Miami Herald on Christmas Day. Actually, Smith is reading the story out loud to Hickok. Oh, yeah, okay. If you're not familiar, Capote recreated a lot of what happened, including conversations and stuff, and the book's written like a novel, and it created a new style of nonfiction writing. It was all based on his interviews with mostly Perry Smith, but also Dick Hickok. People do a lot of that now. 
In any case, he has the two sitting on the beach, Perry Smith reading the Miami Herald, and reads the story out loud to Hickok, and asks him where they were on Saturday night, which would have been the 20th, so the night after they were killed. Hickok says Tallahassee, and Smith wonders if some nut was trying to copy them by killing the family. Some nut had read about what they had done in Kansas and figured they'd do it in Florida. There were similarities to the murders, most obviously the fact that an entire family was killed for no good reason. A bloody cowboy boot footprint was found at both scenes. The two did spend the night of December 19th in Tallahassee, which is several hours north of Sarasota, but they were pinballing around the state that week. Capote writes that Tallahassee is near where the murders took place, which it isn't, but I don't see that as a big deal. The pair had checked out of a Miami Beach hotel on December 19th, the day the walkers were killed, and drove northwest across Florida on Highway 27 toward Sarasota. In January 1960, the Sarasota Herald Tribune ran Smith and Hickok's photos with a headline that said, Have you seen them? Boyer, the sheriff, asked if anybody had seen the two in the Sarasota area in the last two months to let him know. Many calls identifying the two came in, placing the two in Sarasota sometime between December 16th and 20th. And we know that eyewitness IDs are about as reliable as lie detector machines, and people were probably anxious to help solve the Walker case. Still... A saleswoman in Grant's department store in Sarasota had noticed, quote, the tall woman following the short one the day of the murders. They came by a man's house. And remember, the murders happened four to five in the afternoon. And they left their Miami hotel sometime in the morning when they checked out. They also came by a man's house and asked to fix his fender for cash. Smith had been a car painter and Hickok, a car mechanic, before they started their crime careers. A gas station owner said they asked him about auto paint shops in the area. Several people around Nocatee, which is on the northeast coast of the state, across Florida from Sarasota, said they'd seen the two men, one dark-haired and one light-haired, and the light-haired one had scratches on his face, and they were looking for directions. But the Tampa Bay Times story, this is from, doesn't say what day that would have been. Though they did end up back in Miami Beach for Christmas, on Christmas Eve, Hickok and Smith were in Louisiana, which is west of Florida, where they sold two dolls wrapped in Christmas paper to a minister for $1.50. The walkers had Christmas presents beneath their tree, but no one knew how many presents were there or if any were missing. Smith and Hickok's fingerprints didn't match any from the walker home. And as Boyer's men pieced together the trip through Florida, they discovered Hickok and Smith had taken U.S. 27, which would have taken them near, but not through Sarasota. Though I'm not sure how they managed to recreate the trip. And as I said, they were all over the place. They left Miami Beach on the 19th. They were seen in Sarasota the day of the murders. They were in Tallahassee, way up in northern Florida that night. They were in Louisiana on Christmas Eve. They were back in Miami on Christmas Day, so who knows? The two were given a polygraph. In Las Vegas, in February 1960, asked if they had committed the murders. They said they didn't, and they passed the polygraph. Capote wrote, The results of the test, to the dismay of Osprey Sheriff, as well as the lead clutter investigator, Alvin Dewey, who does not believe in exceptional coincidences, were decisively negative. The murderer of the Walker family remains unknown. And indeed... They were no longer considered suspects. That's me, not Truman Capote, saying that. But Sarasota County Detective Kim McGrath, who started reinvestigating the case in 2007, 
told the Associated Press in 2013 that she thinks it's likely they were in the area, given the sightings, particularly the department store one. And I just want to say shout out that AP story was written by a former colleague of mine, Tamara Lush, who I worked with in New Hampshire, and then she went to Florida. And she also has quite a successful fiction writing, romance novel fiction writing career. So, hey, Tamara, right. Aside from those sightings, it's not clear to me if there's more evidence than just anyone saying they saw them, but this detective is pretty set on them having been there. She said that the Walkers were looking to buy a 1956 Chevy Bel Air and I guess had asked around car shops and stuff saying if anyone saw one, that's the kind of car they wanted to buy. It was the same kind of car Smith and Hickok had stolen and were driving. McGrath said it's possible somehow the Walkers and the pair connected over the car, particularly since Smith and Hickok were asking at car shops and stuff about work. Someone may have known the Walkers were looking for a car like that and could have sent them over to the Walkers' house. Since the car was stolen, Smith and Hickok may have wanted to dump it so they could steal something different, you know, to cover their tracks a little, and they also may have needed the money. In 1987, when Elmer Walker was given another polygraph, Sarasota County Lieutenant Max Skeens, the polygraph expert for the sheriff's office, told other detectives on the case that the 1960 polygraph results were essentially worthless. That not only includes the 150 or so they took of all the suspects, but also the ones that Smith and Hickok took in Las Vegas. So, gee, I guess they were a lot less reliable than they are these days. <laughs> you know what I think of polygraphs. But Skeen said not only had the technology improved quite a bit by 1987, but the training in those days, back in the 50s and 60s, often amounted to a 10-minute lesson from the guy who sold the machine. An interesting aside, I was watching a documentary this week that I'm going to do my NNW rating on next episode, and a Texas DA explained more in depth what cops mean when they say polygraphs are essentially a tool, which we hear all the time. He said they're basically used to get people to open up and talk more, which means to me that the results really don't mean anything at all. If by tool, they mean they're just trying to get people to talk more. And yet, I still see people, even though they're not admitted anywhere in court and are notoriously unreliable, you still see people saying, well, he passed a polygraph or well, he failed a polygraph. But I came across an expert in 1987, a different expert, who said that anyone can learn in about an hour how to trick a polygraph and that 50% of polygraph results are generally wrong or unreliable. Well, look at my last episode, Mark Hoffman. I mean, if you're yep. if you're a narcissist or if you're a sociopath right. or something, you can easily trick Right, it. right. And so anyway, flash forward to 2012, December 2012, Smith and Hickok's remains were exhumed to compare DNA with the semen found in Christine Walker's underpants. As you may or may not know, the two were hanged in April 1965 in Kansas for killing the clutters, and they were buried there. And they didn't do a lot back then to preserve the bodies in situations like that when the state has to bury two hanged guys. So the remains were pretty much bones. The results of those DNA tests, that which came back finally in August of 2013, were inconclusive. Kim McGrath, the detective, said in 2013, though, that the two still remain her two top suspects. Christine's niece... Wendy Cascarella, the daughter of Christine's sister, Novella, said that no one talked in front of the kids about the murders when she was young. Quote, as kids, we were dragged to the cemetery, she told reporter Donna Cohn in the 2013 Sarasota Herald Tribune story. Quote, I look at these graves, Christine, Cliff, Jimmy, and Debbie Walker. Who are these people? Why did they all die on the same day? 
Then, she found a True Detective magazine hidden in her mother's nightstand with eight pages of graphic crime scene photos and, quote, breathless prose about the case. Yeah. She said it explained why every year from November to January, her mother became moody, sad, and withdrawn. Christine was born in November and died on December 19th, and the family was buried on Christmas Eve. Quote, My mother tried to make Christmas nice, but we could always tell something was wrong, Wendy said. And she said people told her she was a lot like her Aunt Tilly. She was so sweet and giving, I felt I had to live up to her, Wendy said. I didn't want to destroy her memory for them. Can you imagine what it's like to compete with a ghost? Wendy ended up going into law enforcement, where she has had access to police records on the case, and she thinks evidence shows Smith and Hickok did it. The interview was done after the bodies were exhumed, but before the DNA was found to be inconclusive. But she said, Cops have a gut feeling. I know it in my heart of hearts. The DNA is just crossing the T's and dotting the I's. And by the way, that inconclusive test is just because everything was so degraded that it, it just wasn't possible to determine it if the DNA matched or not. So it didn't rule them out or anything. If there is any other evidence, aside from the sightings of Smith and Hickok in the area, the story didn't elaborate, and I can't find anything. Pat Myers, Christine's younger brother, after the DNS was found to be inconclusive, said, I'm still 99% sure they done it. Just because DNA doesn't show they done it, there's too much other evidence. Smith and Hickok weren't the first guys to be tested for the case. As I said, Albert Walker in 2006 was ruled out because of DNA. And in that year, 2006, investigators had a list of 20 people they planned to do DNA tests on, according to the Sarasota Herald Tribune. Included in the test were two unrelated women who always wondered if their fathers, now deceased, had done it. <laughs> I, I, I just always think it's funny when people yeah, think that. I know. Isn't that weird? Well, yeah. yeah uh, lead investigator, Lieutenant Rob Elbritton, and told the Sarasota paper that he still had high hopes that he'd solve the case. Obviously, none of the people on those lists match the DNA, or we wouldn't be talking about this case right now, or maybe we would with a different conclusion. Don McLeod, 83 when he talked to the Tampa Bay Times in August 2013, had been a suspect until DNA excluded him in 2006. He said he was disappointed the Smith and Hickok test had not solved the case. As far as I'm concerned, he said, it ain't solved. On the four-year anniversary of the murder, in 1963, Sheriff Ross Boyer assured the public that his men had not given up. Quote, No case in the history of this office has ever been investigated so thoroughly for so long by as many officers as we have assigned to this crime, he said. We are confident that the Walker murders will not go unsolved. So now, in 2020, I ask, are they solved or not? You tell me. Ooh, you want me to tell you? (laughs) Well, I think it was Smith and Hickok, and I think... It could easily have been them. Right. Especially with all the other people ruled out, but maybe with ancestral DNA, they'll be able to That's true. I mean, Um, we do have DNA from her attacker, so someone could argue, well, that shows who she had sex with, but whatever. I mean... Right, except for she wasn't having sex with anybody that day. I know, I know. You know. And um yeah, so and it being you know, back then there isn't as much information about the semen, but it's pretty clear they felt the semen came from yeah, then. It probably did. It not you know, it was fresh. You know, it wasn't yes. and Ugh. obviously Cliff was killed the minute he walked in the door, you know. He still had yeah. his coat and his hat and everything on. 
No, it wouldn't surprise me if it was them. I mean, but I always do wonder in these. I mean, I know they did a lot of work, but relying on lie detector tests. What if they hadn't just taken Smith and Hickok's lie detector test as undeniable proof they hadn't done it, but had looked into it more and had questioned people more in the Sarasota area, like found out from the guys who said they had asked about car stuff, did you talk about the walkers wanting to buy a Bel Air? Or if they hadn't, it, you know, it sounds like some of the guys, like Elbert, like until I came across the fact that he had been exonerated by DNA in 2006. I'm like, wow, Elbert Walker looks pretty good. I know. You know? And then that other guy, the neighbor, the creepy neighbor. I know. The, the, you mean the meter reader? That... No, but him too. Oh. I'm talking <laughs> about the pervy old guy um, oh, yeah. who oh, couldn't yeah, keep him. his hands off her. So many possibilities. I know. But had you heard about that at all? Yeah, well, yeah. I, did, I didn't remember until Smith and... Um, Right. That came into it. Oh, twice. At least twice. But in a long book, it's mentioned briefly yeah. on two different pages. You know, it's not something that you'd remember. In fact, I was I couldn't find my copy of the book, and I bought it on Kimball, kind of wondering where my old copy that I've had for years is. But the first time yeah, I read that, I was, I think, of 14 or 15. It's when we, we lived in Augusta, and it was a I Saturday, and for some reason, like, nobody was home. I don't know where everybody uh. would have been. And the dog kept barking. <laughs> and I was like, it, like... I've never, I think it's the only time in my life I was ever happy for my family to come home <laughs> when I was a kid. At least it wasn't at night. I know. Um, I always think of Robert Blake. I do too. And um, I was, because he played Perry Smith. Yeah. Yes, because he played Perry Smith. Yes. And I also think of how fucked over Harper Lee was by a very jealous Truman Capote. And if I people know. don't know the story, you can see that movie where Philip Seymour Hoffman plays Ugh. Truman Capote. I know I don't, yeah. well, he's dead, but. I wasn't a fan of his, but I wasn't a fan of Truman Capote's. Yeah. And he did a good job. Catherine Keener, I think, played yes. Harper Lee. But for those of you who don't know the story, he was not somebody who people in Kansas were going to talk to. Yeah. So she was folksy. She, he brought her yeah. along. She did all the research, all the interviews, and probably wrote a lot of the book. And then, in the meantime, To Kill a Mockingbird, before this came out, To Kill a Mockingbird came out, and she won the Pulitzer Prize, and he got all pissy and jealous. And while he does dedicate In Cold Blood to her, he doesn't mention her in the acknowledgments or all the work that she did. Well, he also used to imply that he wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, to he people. did. Yeah. Because he wishes he had written it. Hannah and I listened to it. It's funny we were talking about it because yesterday we went on a long drive. And so we listened to it on the way there and back. So probably about four hours worth of it. So almost halfway through the book. She likes it so far. Although I had to remind her that there are uh, words that aren't acceptable today in it. And I said this takes place in the 1930s in Alabama. <laughs> Which I think is okay, because you know, yeah. kids, I think kids need to learn that people were different, people spoke differently, different things were acceptable, and it helps them understand why those things aren't acceptable now. Yes. You know, yeah, instead of just kind of whitewashing everything you for kids. You can't whitewash it, because no. then they don't believe that it happened. Right. I saw the movie before I ever read the book, so reading the book was 
affected, you know, so I can't read the book without picturing the people in the movie. The first time I read the book was like sixth grade and I hadn't seen the movie, but, um, and she never really, so far, she doesn't really describe what anyone looks like. And yeah, I did picture somebody, except for Calpurnia kind of, but I did picture somebody like Gregory Peck and it might because I knew that he had, it's hard to know what but right. he is definitely, that was good cast. And it's funny because today you wouldn't be able to have a book where the first several pages are the fucking history of her stupid town. Although I the know. first line about That's the summer her, yeah. her brother broke his arm. Yeah, Hannah didn't like it at first, uh, that part, until Dill showed up. And well, it's hard to get into. I know. And I will Dill, always... A.K.A. Truman Capote. Uh, A.K.A. Truman Capote, right. And I will... I think one of the best scenes in any book I've read, and I've read that book many, many times. You know, we had to read it in grade school, then freshman year in high school, and I've also yeah. read it. I had to read it for a course in college, but I've read it on my own, too. It's the scene at the end where she walks Boo yeah. Radley home, and then she's standing on his porch and looking at the neighborhood through his eyes, and it's just so well-written. You know, yes. it could be really cheesy, but it's it's not. So, it's But funny, yes. we're not here to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird. So that was my oh. story. Thank and you. And I will be doing the next one, and I'm not sure what, what I'll be doing. Well, do you have any recommendations? Yes. Well, why don't we do that? Speaking of books, I'm going to do my negative Nellies on a book I read for the last episode's subject, which was Mark Hoffman, the forger, not to spoil it if you haven't listened to it yet. Well, the title of the episode spoils it a little yeah i know sorry thanks a lot well you can think up you can think them up you know (laughs) the reason i read this book was because usually the book sometimes well i shouldn't say usually but a lot of times it's because you read a book that you get interested and then you Mm. do the the episode well i had decided to do an episode on mark hoffman because i was interested in the whole story i always have been as i said in the episode and so i was looking online to see if there were any documentaries about him which i couldn't find any online although there are some documentaries but there was a book notes show remember that with what's his name lamb yeah was it brian lamb yeah, that something like that. Interviewed yeah. people. And so I, with this guy, Simon Mor- Morell, who wrote this book called The Poet and the Murderer. And I said, oh, that book seems like it might be interesting. Uh, it went from a different perspective because he started out with that Emily Dickinson poem that Mark Hoffman forged was being sold at so- Sotheby's, and um, which was years, more than 10 years after Mark Hoffman had been put in prison. And then, like, Two months later, it was found out to be a forgery. They should have already knew it was a forgery. But anyway, that's how he started it. So I'm like, oh, this book sounds like it will be good. So I put it on my Kindle. And so now I'm going to review it. Okay. Number one is Bad Reenactments. I'm not going to take any points off because there aren't really reenactments, uh, you know. So it's a book. right because it's a book. Narrative cliches. I'm taking a point off. Ooh. Um, I'm trying to think of specifics. It was written in 2002. 
or it was published in 2002. It seems to me that it was not edited very well. I don't know. I'm taking a point off, but now I can't think of anything specific. Great review. Shut up. I don't care. Just take my word for it. There's some cliches. Racial gender obtuseness, I'm taking a point off. He spends a lot of time for gender obtuseness, not racial, because I don't even know if there's anyone in it that's that's a person of color. He spends a lot of time on Emily Dickinson and her life. And there's a lot of assumptions made about her. Um, I think because he's a man and she was a single woman who lived in her parents' house and she was kind of a recluse. And he makes a lot of assumptions about her because of that. When she's like this spinster, all this stuff. You know, who knows? She had health issues. Who knows what her situation was? I don't, and I've read other assumptions about her before that it's like, you know, she was a private person. You can, you can presume things from reading. Or he can say scholars who study Dickinson have said blah, blah, blah about her. Yeah, but he, to make general assumptions on his own when what the hell does well, he know? Well, even some of the scholars and stuff they are making, I know, I know, because of the fact that she's a woman and never got married and blah blah blah. Right. So I'm taking it off for that. Lack of good visuals. I'm taking a point off because there are no friggin' pictures anywhere in the Kindle. Maybe there are pictures in the print book. I don't know, but I had. To I, look hate that. I hate that. I hate that. There might have been like one picture in the whole book. When it's about forgeries and you want to see what the documents are. And also, uh, he does the thing which we have talked about before, which I hate, Uh. is to describe a photograph of somebody but not have it in the book. That happens so often, and, and it drives me about, like, fucking nuts. You know, nuts. the one the one photograph you know about uh, Emily Dickinson is the one, she's like 17. She's very, you know, uh, right. young. And that's the one you always see. And there's another one that he said people say is her, but I don't know, blah, 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 when she was older. I, I had to look online to see what that one was. Right. She- Knowing what I do about the publishing world, in some cases, in the... Um, Hard copy books, there were photos. Yeah. But it's more of a process. Well, not more of a process, because nothing on line is more of a process than actually printing a hard copy, whether it's paperback or hardcover book. But it's difficult in the formatting to get the photos right. And so mm-hmm. I think particularly books that were made into ebooks a few years ago and stuff, they just didn't bother. But yeah. if if anybody involved in the true crime publishing industry is listening to this podcast, <laughs> and I pray you are, please put fucking photos in the book. First of all, when you just get a sample, you can't tell if there's photos or not if it's not listed in the table of contents. I know. List them in the table of contents and... Put them in the book because there's nothing I hate more than buying a true crime book and there not being any photos. I know. So, yes, and if you so, go to the store to buy a paperback, you can look in it and see if there's photos. That's right. Because I like to look at the photos over and over as I'm yes, reading. Yes, me too. And it's not as easy to just keep looking it up online. And sometimes you can't find stuff online because yes, I've tried that. I know. Missing pieces, I'm taking a point off. Ooh. It's a true crime book. Not a necessarily true crime, but it's nonfiction. There is no index in the back. There are no notes, footnotes, and references in the back. I don't like that. Uh, there's no bibliography. There's nothing. He doesn't cite any sources for things. Uh, once in a while he does, but it's not regular. That's awful. So I'm taking a point off. Taking a point off for anachrony anachronisms because Ooh. there were a couple times... Okay, I'll give you an example. He mentions... Um, the Emily Dickinson poem was discussed in an antiques 
Digest magazine, and he names the guy uh, who wrote the article about his last name's Llewellyn or something. I wanted to see if I could read the article online. Looked up that guy's last name, and I couldn't find it anywhere, so I went the other way. I looked up Main Antiques Digest. The last name was spelled wrong. And that goes to bad editing as well, because because when you edit nonfiction, which is something I used to do as a freelancer, you look up every proper noun and make sure it's accurate. And that was not the only mistake. And the other thing would be was it self-published no no i can't remember the publisher now but it was no and he was on like book notes and stuff and and he was also speaker at all these symposiums and stuff wow my resentment Um, just builds i know i'm sorry he's uh was a magazine writer for i think he originally wrote an article for either the atlantic or the new yorker or one of Mm. those magazines so uh, the other thing is there like i said this is an editing thing but I'm not necessarily just critiquing him. I'm critiquing the book as a whole. Mm. And there are a lot of grammatical errors. Mm. Um, the wrong word being used. Oh, like what? Or, Do you have an example? You know, it says the instead of then or stuff like oh, that. You know, oh, just like, oh, you know, oh. typo type of thing. That's they're amateur not, hour, man. Not, yeah, they're typos. They're not. Because you know, cause I also hate it like when somebody uses like purposefully when they mean purposely. No, it was, and... there wasn't stuff like that. It was more stuff like just that's you know, even sloppy. worse. That's yeah. worse. Storytelling. Now the storytelling was good. I mean the way he told the story was good. I'm not taking a point off, but I will say that again, this is an editing thing. In some ways, I liked the fact that he went into the history of of things of the different documents, of the background of things. But some of it could have been cut a little bit. I think he went into a little bit too much detail. He, he uh, fell in love too much with his, his research, <sighs> I guess. So I'm not taking a point off, but it could have been tightened up. Repetition, I am taking a point off. Again, it's an editing thing. There were things he said more than once that I think it was one of those things where he moved what he was going to say about something, a fact or something, but then he didn't get rid of the original thing because he'll say something like, oh, this document was first seen, blah, 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 and then like 30 pages later, it'll be the same thing. Uh, So stuff like that. So I'm taking a point off. Beating the drum, I'm not going to take a point off. He does have a point of view, especially about uh, just the whole field of document trading, you know, document selling and auctioning and the auction houses and how sloppy they are and how they don't, they don't really care whether something's authentic and blah, blah, blah. So he does have a, a kind of a point of view about that, that he does, you know, drive home, but he doesn't, I don't think he really beats the drum. So I'm not taking anything yeah. off of that. So it got a four. Oh. I mean, I did read it from cover to cover. I didn't set it aside. I did enjoy it, but there were a lot of issues with it. But it was an interesting story. I think there are probably better books about Mark Hoffman, but mm. I've just about had it with him, so I don't think I'm going right. to read any of them. Yeah, But it had a lot of Emily Dickinson in it and the other... Um, I, story didn't because right. it wasn't really about that and so it was interesting the things that you've brought up as issues are things that would bug me too much to read it i just feel like it was it, overly I know. long it just needed to be edited much yeah. better and i'm not like that's an excuse i'm not like you i'm not a, an Who editor is? i'm not as much of a stickler as you so if i notice stuff and i will say that there are mistakes in books you know my publisher doesn't have the greatest editors and in fact my first book there's a line that's supposed to be god she was an idiot (laughs) the she somehow came out and it says god was an idiot oh nice and that 
first of all, it doesn't make sense. Second of all, why have a typo that offends people and I can't get it changed? So yes, there are mistakes, but when there are a lot and it's noticeable, it tells you that the book wasn't as well edited as it could have been. And also some of the other things you mentioned, like lengthy exposition and stuff. But even though I don't have one, I do want to just update people that I'm on my 20th Ian Rutledge Mystery by Charles Todd. How many do those people write? Well, I have two more, and then I've pre-ordered the one that comes out in February. And the writing has gotten a lot better as the books have progressed, I will say. So I still have some issues. Like somebody told somebody, you've got another think coming. And I can guarantee you nobody in 1920 was saying that in England. But thank you for your... Oh, oh, are you... Harper Collins. Oh. Yep, Harper Collins. Okay. Okay, whatever. So, yeah, so that book was... Published by Harper Collins. Mm. Was not so okay. published. So, whatever. Okay, so I guess that's it for Today. this episode. And come visit us on crimeandstuffonline.com, Facebook. You can come like our Facebook page. You can comment on stuff. <laughs> not that we put that much or send on there. us messages. Yeah. Um, we don't have a discussion group, as we've said, because we just... We just don't have time we can't to deal. deal with that. We don't um, even have time to, like, just post stuff normally half the time. We're very, we're very busy. So, thank you, everybody, though. And we'll see you next time. Okay, bye Thanks for listening. Oh, what's going can, on? I can't can, hear you. Can you hear me now? Beebs, why can't I hear? I can hear you. Did you did you do something? I'm gonna go back in, okay, if you can hear me. Jesus Christ.